Well, good morning, church. It's good to be together once again as we continue our study in the book of Acts. Uh, today we found ourselves in Acts chapter 10, verse 36. Uh, we left off at verse 35 last week, so please turn there in your copy of God's Word. While you're turning there, let me remind you a little bit of the context that we're in. Uh, to just kind of, if anybody, if anybody perhaps was not here, uh, that they might get some context. We've been tracking with this book, uh, and really what has we've been, been tracking so far is that the Lord Jesus uh, left His apostles, gave them the Holy Spirit, and empowered them to be His witnesses uh, from Jerusalem, He says, Judea, Samaria, until uh, the ends of the earth. And so for a long time, we saw the Lord, the, this being fulfilled, this happening in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. We saw the church growing. We saw an explosion of the gospel. Uh, for mo- much of the ten chapters uh, of the book of Acts, they've been tracing the, the wonders of the gospel throughout those first three areas. And then something changed in chapter 9. And certainly in chapter 10. In chapter 9, we saw the salvation of Saul of Tarsus, whom, whom of course, was the cause of the massive uh, persecution that we saw earlier. And we saw the Lord conquering him, making him a part of the army, a part of the church that he was busy satanically trying to destroy. And then Peter, in chapter 10... uh, Uh, receives this vision, which we've been with for the past number of weeks, this wonderful vision where that Peter is not happy about because he's struggling to obey it, where there's food that comes down and the Lord tells him, kill and eat, Peter. And then Peter tells the Lord, no, what, I've never myself eaten anything that's common or unclean. And then the Lord corrects him, what God calls clean, do not call unclean. But all of it, all of that vision wasn't just about the food as we saw last week. It all lands, it landed on Peter's two realizations after after the men come from Cornelius to bring Peter to Cornelius uh, there at Caesarea, up uh, a a number of kilometers up from Joppa where Peter was at. And we saw last week that the cleanliness that God is talking about is that people from every nation who do what is acceptable to him are acceptable to God regardless of what nation they're from. That was one of the revelations uh, that Peter saw. Uh, The key one, of course, was that God shows no partiality as Peter begins to speak in verse 34. So we looked at that last week. So here we are. Peter is really being taken by the Lord in this journey into a Gentile house where he has been prepared by the Lord to come into this Gentile's house, this uncircumcised person's house, to proclaim the gospel. And he gets there, and he's he's just saying, now I understand, I should not treat people with partiality, because God doesn't treat with people with partiality. And I should not call people unclean, that God calls clean. So let's pick it up there. Uh, What does Peter say now after this? After Peter now makes this statement of understanding that we saw last week, verse 34 and verse 35. 
what does he say? I'll just read from the beginning of Peter's speech there in verse 34, just for completeness. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, now here's our text, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on that third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he had commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is God's word. I wonder... What do you think this morning are the key elements of the gospel of Jesus Christ? I wonder what do you think? If I were to take a survey here this morning, what are things, if you were given a new group of people, a new, brand new group of people that have never heard this at all, what is it that you arrive there and say as the essential things that the gospel of Jesus Christ is about? Now, among the answers that you might give me, some are close to being correct, some are dead correct, and some are dead wrong. And Peter here this morning gives us his version of this particular sermon. Um, he gives us a synthesis, a pristine synthesis of what the gospel is as he brings it for the very first time to a Gentile audience to an audience that is not Jewish. He is bringing the, this message, this word, for the very first time. And this is how he summarizes it. He says that the gospel is good news of peace through him who is the Lord of all. That's the summary. The gospel is good news of peace through him who is the Lord of all. And his entire gospel presentation... This entire section we've just read has those two threads beginning with his summary of what he's about to say there in verse 36. He gives the summary of what this news is, this, this message is, and then he goes on to outline and he emphasizes and hits on those two points repeatedly. That the gospel is good news of peace through the one who is the Lord of all. And so that will be our attention this morning, to look at those two things as Peter shows them to us. Of course, he, he says this to a group of Gentiles, and he's trying to, of course, to, to proclaim 
what he knows to be the message that he has been sent with. He comes to a group of Gentiles and he tells them about peace. He, he finds a word, a word that Jews, of course, would have used a lot, shalom. Of course, this is the Greek version of it, Irene. But it's also the word, a word that you find throughout the New Testament. The whole New, if you do a search on the New Testament about the concept of peace, you find it throughout the New Testament. It is a controlling uh, way of thinking by the biblical writers. And this is, this is important to note because peace is what everybody needs. Peace is the substance that everybody hungers for. The whole theory of, of war, everything, all the strife that happens is because we're all trying to create a utopia. The whole theory of, of all the, the economic theories that we are all fighting over are because we're all trying to create a utopia. Everybody wants peace, to live quiet, to not have to fight, to not have to fight different things. And we need this peace in different ways. We need first, the first, uh, first peace we need is peace with God. And that is the key peace that is at the core of all of it. The challenge is that we are not at peace with God. We are not well, we're not doing well with the maker of, of the universe. Things are not right between us and Him, and we need that peace. The second aspect of peace is that we need is we, we need peace with others, with people around us. There is a need, a, a, a crying out for a harmonious existence with the people. And not just the people, but the world around us. The, 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 the way the world works, the economy, the, the land, the everything. There is, a, there is a desire to not have all these elements against us. There is a desire for peace. And the third one is that there is a desire for peace internally. Well, at least there should be should be a desire to be at peace with oneself, to not be in this strife with the flesh, fighting against sin, fighting against doing what you know you shouldn't be doing, but doing it anyway. There is this constant fight. And so the world, what the message is in Peter's summary, that this is a message of peace that is found through the one who is the Lord of all. I say this, that this is Peter's thesis, because you see it there in verse 36. Look at verse 36 with me as we begin our time in this text. It says, as for the word. Now, the word that's used word there could also be translated message. It's often translated word, but in this context, the word message actually fits better uh, because of what he's about to say. Remember what just happened here. He, he, Cornelius said, I was given, an, an angel came to me to tell me that you should come and we were, we've all gathered here, me and my friends and my relatives, we're all gathered here to hear what you have to say. What is the message? What is the word? What is the headline and summary and the, and the, and the thing that you have been given by God to come and give to us? That is what Peter is saying here. So, I, he's just talking about his realization, okay, now I understand that God shows no partiality and anyone who does what is right is acceptable to him. But now, coming to what you have asked me here for, here it is, the word that he sent to Israel, the message that God sent 
to Israel is the same message I'm now proclaiming to you. And he's here, and then he defines it. This message is preaching, heralding good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of all. That's the summary there in verse 36. It is this message, the message that was given by He, who's He? God is He. God, through Israel, is a message of good news of peace through Him who is Lord of all. And so for us to understand this message, we need to understand both of these concepts, these two aspects, and we will see how Peter weaves them throughout this gospel presentation. But first, let's understand and talk about peace before we come to talking about the one who is Lord of all in Peter's summary. Good news of peace. How would you define peace? What is peace? What is that? How would you, how would you study? How would we, if you were to study, the, you have to make a, a, an academic paper to explain the concept of peace, what would you say? What are some elements that would be in there? Well, perhaps what you might say might be correct or not, but really what we need to understand is what does Peter mean by the word peace, yeah? So we might, you, your, your definition of peace might be different to the person next to you. So what does Peter himself mean by peace? Well, this, this, this concept of peace is throughout the Bible, like I said. It comes from the Hebrew shalom which speaks of wholeness, of health, safety, harmony, prosperity. It speaks of a whole life, a life that has no trouble. That is why the Jews, even till this, they say shalom, they say peace of God be with you. And the biblical writers took the same thing. May the peace of the Lord be with you always. It is this, this understanding of may you just live harmoniously in a whole way without any breakages anywhere in your life. And not only that, but also the Lord Jesus is associated oftentimes throughout the Bible with the concept of peace. He is called the Prince of Peace by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9. He is called the Lord of Peace in 2 Thessalonians. And in John 14, he says to disciples, my peace I leave with you. So this concept of peace is a huge aspect uh, in the biblical story. And in trying to explain this, this, this concept, uh, I came across a story that was perfect. Uh, you know, I don't know what your profession is, but you know in your profession when you're trying to solve a thing and then you just get the perfect, you just get the perfect solution. Maybe you're trying a code and the code works or you're, you're trying to fix a wall and then it just stands. Whatever it is that you do and then you have just that wonderful moment in your work. Well, I had a similar moment this week. I found the story that explains peace very wonderfully. So let me read. I'm going to read it to you at length, but just... Uh, trust me, it's not too long and it's not too complicated. Here's a story. Uh, the story is told of, an old man, of a man who sought the perfect picture of peace, not finding one that satisfied me. So he, he wanted a picture, a portrait of peace. Not finding one that satisfied him, because he was a rich man, he announced a contest to produce a masterpiece that encapsulates peace. 
Okay? The, the challenge stirred the imagination of artists everywhere, and paintings arrived from far and wide. And finally, the great day of revelation, revelation arrived. So people came and the judges were here to judge which picture really encapsulates, really describes the concept of peace. The, the judges uncovered one peaceful scene after another while the viewers clapped and cheered and tensions grew and only two pictures remained veiled. As a judge pulled the cover from one of the pictures, a hush fell over the crowd. A mirror-smooth lake reflected lacy green birches under the soft blush of the evening sky. Along the grassy shore, a flock of sheep grazed undisturbed. Can you picture it? Just a pristine by the lake Wonderful side, there's a nice little moon there, it's wonderful, and the sheep are softly grazing undisturbed. And everybody says, this has to be the winner, this is the picture. The man with the vision then came and uncovered the second painting himself, and the crowd gasped in surprise. Could this picture be the one about peace? In this picture, there's a tumultuous waterfall cascading down a rocky precipice. And the crowd could almost feel its cold, penetrating spray. Stormy gray clouds threatened to explode with lightning, wind, and rain. And in the midst of the thundering noises and bitter chill, a spindly small tree clung to the rocks at the edge of the falls. One of its branches reached out in front of the torrential waters as if foolishly seeking to experience its full power. And a little bird, a little bird had built its nest on the elbow of that one lone branch in the midst of this torrent. Content and undisturbed in her stormy surroundings, she rested on her eggs. With her eyes closed and her wings ready to cover her little ones, she manifested peace that transcends all earthly turmoil. See this picture? This picture is just there. This little spindling thing is is like this. There's there's clouds, there's thunder, there's rain, and there's this little little small nest, the peaceful bird with with her eggs. Now is this... The picture of peace. I'm going to leave that to you. Which one properly encapsulates the idea of peace? Is it the first one where it's beautiful and nothing is interrupting the peace? Everything around there is just designed and maintains a peaceful image? Or is it the picture of one who is in the midst of a storm but peaceful internally? The answer is both. Both. The reality is that humans desire, have a longing for, rightfully so, a peace that lasts in an environment that can sustain that peace. And the gospel promises that first picture peace. The gospel promises an earth where there is no poverty. There is no crying. There is no unfaithful spouse. There are no scammers. No need for security companies. No violence. No hatred. No internal struggle. No sickness. No bodily or emotional inconsistency. No self-hate. 
after one has indulged in sin. No inflation out there or oil price or Russia. No pandemics. Nothing. Sorry, not, not no Russia. I mean no war. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Not trying to make a political statement. Okay. Just saying no war, no fighting, things happening. The earth that is promised by the coming of Jesus Christ is an earth that fits that first picture. A pristine image, undisturbed, no enemy in sight, grazing along the grass under a wonderful night sky. That is why, my friend, the prosperity gospel is so evil. Because it has so much truth in what it's saying and twists it. That is why the prosperity gospel is such a demonic thing. Because it has a lot of true things. takes a lot of true things, but it just puts it at the wrong location and the whole thing is lost. But does the gospel promise health? Yes. In fact, it promises anyone who believes in an upgraded bo- to an upgraded body. Anybody who believes the gospel, the gospel says you'll have an upgraded body, body 2.0. That's what the gospel, that's what the gospel promises. Promises that there will be a time where you're not plagued by diseases, not plagued by sickness, not plagued by, fa- by frailty, by, go- by growing old and feeling your bones crack and your knees not work anymore. The gospel promises that. It really does. Does the gospel promise wealth? Yes. In fact, not just wealth, but the scripture says the entire earth. The whole world, Paul says, is yours. Everything is yours. Does the gospel promise success? Yes. In fact, the gospel promises that those who believe in it will never sin again. There's going to come a time where those who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ will never sin again. You will be completely successful. The question is when. The question is when. When is this feast to fully arrive? See, the first coming of the Lord of all announced the entrance of the kingdom of God at the same time as the old world is still alive. Okay, it's what, we, what theologians call the already and not yet. You've heard that phrase? The already and not yet. The kingdom of God has arrived but at the same time as the old kingdom, the, the, the one that is ruled by the God of this world is still in operation. And it is not until this old kingdom is completely destroyed and completely done away with and this enemy is done with, then we will see the fullness of what the gospel promises. But of course, prosperity gospel misses this, mixes this and says, the reason you're not having, you're not, you, the reason you're sinning and you're still struggling with sin is because you're, you don't have the second blessing. And when you have the, had, the, had the second blessing, well, you don't, have the, you don't have the true, you don't have true proper faith. And the reason that you don't, you're, you're struggling with money and, and all these things is because you don't really, you're not really trusting God in the way that you are. But that's missing the location. The, it's not up to us, it's, a, it's up to the Lord of all. The Lord of all is the one who achieves this peace for us. And it is coming in its fullness. 
When Peter says this message is a message of peace, it is a message indeed of tranquility. And you, dear Christians, when you're dealing with your prosperity gospel friends, do not say that the gospel is not bringing a message of peace. A message, the gospel is not a, a message of, of wholeness. It is. It's just a matter of when. He's talking about, when he says the message, the message of peace, he's talking indeed of a, a revitalized earth when all sin and destruction that exists now is done. And I want to take you to Isaiah 65 if you want to see this peaceful picture. Hold your place next to and let's go see. This is, I think, perhaps the best Old Testament imagery of, the com- of this kingdom and the peace that this kingdom is talking about in its fullness. Isaiah 65, verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in, the, in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build another and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for destruction and calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer, and while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Do you, are you getting this picture? Okay, remember, he's using poetic language. He's not saying that in that kingdom people will really be dying. He's using poetic language to explain this pristine time that is coming. That there will, be no, there will be no feeling that somebody, somebody didn't live out their days. Everybody's going to live out in peace, eating food all around them in perfect tranquility. That's the picture of peace. And this peace is also highlighted throughout the narrative that Peter speaks of here back here in chapter 10. That Jesus, throughout his ministry, showed that he has the power to bring this peace. Come back to Acts 10. Look, at, look with me at verse 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. That's the summary of Jesus' earthly ministry by Peter. He went about doing good after being empowered by the Spirit with power. He went about doing good and healing, and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Oh, Peter, Jesus did a lot more. Jesus taught. Jesus did a lot more than just do, go about doing good and healing all the oppressed. Why are you attacking? Why are you talking specifically about that aspect of the gospel, of Jesus' life? Well, it's because Peter is trying to show that Jesus has the power to bring peace, as is well known. 
See, this is what the miracles and all the healings were all alluding to. They're not just alluding. We, we've spoken about this a number of times in the book of Acts. The healings and the miracles and the resurrections that Jesus did, they were alluding to the fact that Jesus is the chosen one. Yes. But there's another aspect to it. And the other aspect to it is that Jesus is showing the power that he has and what, will, what will be, it'll be like in his kingdom. So when somebody is healed and Jesus says to them, don't tell anybody else. Don't, 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 don't go tell anybody else. What's happening there is Jesus is bringing a little bit of a taste of the kingdom to come now. You have a disease that has, that has troubled you forever. Child of Israel, let me give you a taste of the peace that is yours if only you believe in me. You will live a whole life. What disease has plagued you? What ailment has been internally being, giving you an issue? Child of Israel, if you only trust in me, I'm going to give you this and more. Entire freedom from all kinds of diseases. That's why Peter is only talking about this, even though Jesus did a whole bunch of other things. He's trying to highlight that Jesus is the one who can bring that peace. But the second picture is also true. Okay, so that's the first picture. The first picture is the pristine image, and that is true. The wholesome image where there's no problems. The gospel promises that when the king returns. But the second image is also true. You remember the second picture? Second picture of that bird, of that nest, hanging near the floodwaters, the waterfall waters there, in the midst of gray clouds and thunderstorms, but having internal peace, her and her, chi, and her, and her babies. That picture is also true. There is a peace now that we can truly enjoy now in the midst of the chaos around us. So you don't have to wait until the, or, until the peace comes in its entire fullness over the whole earth before you enjoy peace. There is a peace now that you can enjoy. Come with me to Ephesians chapter 2. and I want to show you Paul's explanation of how we can enjoy this peace. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. Notice what... Paul calls Jesus here in verse 14. He says, He Himself is our peace. Did you hear that? He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has brought down, broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in himself one man in place of the two, so making peace. Well, what peace is he talking about here? Well, the peace that he's talking about here is specifically about Jews and Gentiles. Okay, so there was a dividing wall of hostility of all the ordinances that, uh, that led to the Jews calling the Gentiles unclean. And he's saying Christ has done away with all of that, broken it all down in his own body. He then becomes the thing that unites both Jews and Gentiles. But of course, we understand that this also means that if Jews and Gentiles have been united in Christ as the centerpiece of peace, that it means that even Gentiles among themselves can have peace in Christ as the centerpiece of peace. It means that there is 
there is a place where we can enjoy real peace in Christ. And where is that place? Right here. When God's people are together all around Jesus Christ, we can enjoy real peace where there is no dividing wall of hostility. The dividing wall of hostility in, in Paul's mind here is a dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. But there's many dividing walls even among Gentiles as we're here. There's many dividing walls. There's language, there's culture, there's history, there's, there's different classes, different economic brackets, there's male and female. There's all kinds of things that could become a dividing wall of hostility between us. But Paul says here, Jesus Christ himself is our peace. And so we can enjoy real peace here among each other. And look at verse 16. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What's the other peace that's there? It's peace with God. Peace with God. See, the reality is, dear friends, is that if you're here and you're not in the Lord Jesus Christ, hear me clearly, you do not have peace with God. If you're here, you're hearing my voice, and you are not in the one who is the peace. If you're not in the one whose body created peace with God, you have no reason to believe that you, there's any friendship between you and God. There's no friendship. Based on what? What do you and God have in common? God is holy, you have sin. God loves righteousness. While sometimes you might say you hate your sin, you often go back to it, showing that you truly love it in your body. What do you and God have in common? On what basis can you say that me and God are fine? On what basis do you face life and indeed the prospect of death every day knowing that you and God are at odds? Who do you think is going to win if the two of you come to, come to butt heads? He will crush you. He is the maker of the universe. You, are, you, have, no, you have nothing that you can use to fight back with. The only way, my friend, that you can have true peace is through this one who is our peace. Through this one who is the one through his own body destroyed all hostility between, between his people and God. Verse 17, And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. Who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That's the peace. The peace that we have here is, is through Jesus Christ and we can actually know that peace. And you, dear saints, you know those moments of peace with Christ. You have peace with Christ, but there are moments when you enjoy particular special fellowship with Him. Perhaps here at the church or even at home when you're praying and you, 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 He is about you, you, you are in His Word. That is what the peace, that is the second image of peace and that is true as well. That we can have true peace that is lasting even while we are here. Even in the midst of all the chaos around us. So where does this leave us? Let's come to some implications now. The way I see it, 
it leaves us with uh, one implication for the unbeliever and two implications for the believer, the one who's already in Christ. So I've already spoken about the implication for the one who's not in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you need to make peace. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. But to you who are believers, here are two things that I want to, there are two implications for you. Number one, if God, like we saw last week, God is impartial, therefore we also want to be impartial. Then, if God is the bringer of peace through the one who is the Lord of all, then you should also be a peacemaker. You, you following that logic? We saw last week, God is impartial, therefore we should be impartial. In the same way, if God brings peace, if God is a peace bringer, then you should be a peace bringer as well. You should be a peacemaker. That should be, if you want to be like God, then you ought to be doing the things that God is doing. And you know now that God, one of the things He's doing actively right now is bringing peace to the world through this message. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Why will they be called sons of God? They've been called sons of God because they have the character of God. God makes peace and His sons make peace. Hebrews 12 verse 14, Pursue peace with everyone and holiness, holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Pursue peace with everyone. In as much as it is up to you, pursue to be at peace with everyone. Do not be the Christian that there's always a fight around. Now, if you think that fights always follow you, you need to look at your shadow. The problem it might be if, if there's always a fight around you, there's always a fight, always something, always something happening, always some, some drama, some issues, always. Perhaps the issue is staring at you in the mirror. Perhaps you're not someone who strives. See when he says pursue peace, strive, make an effort to be at peace with all men in as much as it is up to you, and then, of course, at the same time, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And here's a practical way. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22 to 23. But flee from youthful desires and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace in company with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. Okay, how do I pursue love and faith and righteousness? Well, here's the corollary of that, and peace. Here's the corollary of that in verse 23. But avoid foolish and uninformed controversies because you know that they produce quarrels. It's a very practical way. I love it when Paul gives me just a very practical thing to do. You pursue peace. And we're told everywhere, pursue peace with everyone. Okay, how do I practically do that? Number one, first thing, avoid foolish and uninformed controversies. Don't talk about things you don't know. Because you know that when people start talking about things they don't know and they start speculating, they start, fight, they start doing all these things that they don't know, what happens? Quarrels. Speculations. And we can keep going on that list. All the things that produce quarrels and fighting and, 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 and clashes, you avoid them. So here, how does this look? Oh, it looks very simple. I'm joining a conversation, I'm, I'm coming, you know, you're at a place, you know, there's people, and then you join a conversation, and you can hear, oh, this is about things that they can't even verify. They don't even know this. They're just talking about foolish, con just controversies and speculations, and, and ah, ah, and they're just angry. Okay, 
This is how you, this is what you do. Step back and go join another conversation. Avoid. That's what he says. He says avoid them. Be a peacemaker. Be a person who is known as a Christian in, in your circles among your people as the one who brings people together, not divides them apart. You're the one who's, who's willing, like God, to, to bring a, a, just a bit, a taste of heaven on earth. Where people can go home and it's serene. Not that people find out, wait, who's at this party? This person is? No thanks, I'm not coming. Because, because if I go there, there's going to be a fight. Be a peacemaker. If our God is a peacemaker, then you must be a peacemaker. Second implication for us as Christians. Pray and trust God in the midst of chaos. Like that little bird, that little bird in that picture, closing its eyes around its little, little, little eggs here. Peaceful. If a lightning strike comes and strikes the bird, the bird is done for, right? If some part of the waterfall, not even that many, like three liters of the waterfall falls over the bird and its, and its nest, it's all over, right? So how can the bird have any confidence and peace when it has no power to ensure that it is safe? Well, the bird must trust in somebody else. The bird must trust in the one who controls the flood, the bird must trust in the one who brings the waterfall, who controls the winds, who controls the thunder. Colossians 3.15 And the peace of Christ must rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Philippians 4.6 Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You know the verse. That's what we are to hope for. Pray and trust God in the midst of the situation that we're in, in whatever chaos that we're in. Praying, steadfastly holding on to our God, to keep us safe. And even if the waterfall does bring us down, even if the waterfall does kill us, whatever this disease is, even if it does actually, the worst does happen, I die. Praise God, the first picture of peace is true. There is a heaven, a glorious future, an eternal peace awaiting for me, and death is just a door to it. That's the first aspect. This is a message of peace through the Lord of all. We've spoken about the peace. Now let's speak about the second phrase. He is the Lord of all. There in verse 36. Let me read it for you again. As for the message he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all. What does Lord of all mean? What does that mean, and, and specifically, what does Peter have in mind when he says Lord of all? Well, interestingly enough, the rest of it, most of what he says now is in service to this particular point. Who is Jesus, and, 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 and what does it mean that he is Lord of all? And, and here's a summary of it. The Lord of all alludes to the reality that he is God's chosen ruler over all the earth. That's, the, that's what it talk, it's talking about. The Lord of all alludes to the reality that He is God's chosen ruler 
over all the earth. I want to show you this. I want you to work with me. Verse 37. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed. Notice, I want you to notice how often this, this phraseology comes back throughout, throughout what Peter says. Verse 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Verse 39, And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not, all, not to all the people, but to us, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge, to be judge of the living and the dead. Do you see how often this phrase comes back? What's the phrase? Jesus is the one chosen by God. Jesus had God with him all the time. The, the God of the universe was with Jesus. God anointed him with the spirit and power. He was able to do all the things that he did because God was with him. They put him to death and hung him on a tree, but God raised him and made him to appear to us who are witnesses. And God chose us to be his witnesses so that we can proclaim that he is the one appointed by God. Do you see, do you see that? comes back often and often and often. Peter is stressing to these Gentiles that this peace, the message of peace, comes through the one appointed and chosen by God. Jesus Christ is the one chosen and appointed by God to be the bringer of this peace. And I want you to notice something in verse 42 and verse 43. Verse 42, He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To Him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. In verse 42 and verse 43, there are witnesses. Who are they? There are two witnesses. In verse, 43, in verse 42, who are the witnesses there? The disciples. Did you see that? And He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify. This is the whole witness theme that we've been seeing throughout the book. To testify to what we saw, that He is the one appointed by God. And in verse 43, to, all, to him all the prophets bear witness. So there's two, there's two witnesses, the apostles and the Old Testament prophets. Both of them together in the court of Jewish law are the witnesses that we need to establish that Jesus is indeed the one chosen by God to judge everyone and to bring forgiveness of sins. That's what is meant by Lord of all. He is the appointed one. He is the chosen one. He is the one set apart by God. Foolish are you to seek another. Foolish are you to seek another. Foolish are you to ignore Him. Foolish. Foolish are you to live your life as though He is irrelevant. He is the one who will judge you, whether you're alive or dead at the time of judgment. He is the one who will judge you. Foolish. It's like we're all preparing for a final exam. This analogy has been used many times, I'm sure. We're all preparing for a final exam. 
But here you are ignoring what the teacher says about what's going to be in the exam. Here you are, imagine, just ignoring, don't want to listen. You don't want to listen to what the teacher says is going to be in the exam. No, I don't want to listen. I don't, I'm going to figure it out myself. I'm going to listen to somebody. I'm going to listen to my friends. I'm going to listen to somebody. I don't want, I don't want you who's setting the test to tell me what's going to be in the test so I can prepare. No, I'm going to find my, my solution elsewhere. You see how foolish that is? It's very foolish. See, that's what it is. When people ignore the Lord Jesus Christ as if he's just one among many, he isn't. He is the one. He is the one. Fairest among all. Psalm 45 says, fairest among all is the king. There is no one like him. He is the one chosen, established to be king and ruler of all the earth. And this king and ruler brings peace by dying for his subjects and offering forgiveness of sins. Friends, this is the message of the gospel. Message of the gospel is a message of peace. Through him who is the Lord of all, appointed by God. And praise God if we hold on to that message, we know we will be fine, regardless of what's happening around us. Come disease, come challenges, whatever happens, if we hold on to that message, we know that we are holding on to the one who will judge us at the end. Praise God. And let's praise God also for giving us this message. You see, this message is now arriving in our text to Gentiles. We didn't deserve it. I don't know about your people, but my people certainly didn't deserve it. We didn't deserve this grace. We didn't deserve to be told of the one who can make us right with God such that no sin, not even one, shall be... I won't have to account for even one. Not, not one. Okay, forget the thousands and the millions. Just I won't account for any one sin that I've committed if I believe and trust in this man. Yes is the answer. We don't deserve that. We need to praise God for this wonderful message of peace that He has given to us while we did not deserve it. Amen. Let's pray. O King of peace, ruler of all that exists, what words can we use, Lord Jesus, to describe you? We can say you are a lion, but lions have weaknesses. We can say you are a lamb, but lambs are nowhere near as pure as you. Or we can try to use lofty, different kinds of language. We can use pictures and images. Artists can paint trying to describe your lordship. No one will be able to, ever to do it. You are alone. And Lord Jesus, we praise you that you have brought your message of peace even to us. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be those who are like you, who are going about bringing a little bit of peace wherever we are, to be peacemakers. And that ultimately that we'll be the ultimate peacemakers in bringing your message of peace to, to those around us. Help us by your grace, Lord, to emulate you, to be like you. In your name we pray. Amen.